Our text today will be from the book of Ephesians, surprise, surprise. And uh, we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So if you could please turn there now. This is a bit of a strange section because it doesn't actually follow what's gone before especially well. Uh, Paul starts with a thought in verse 1 and then he suddenly dives off into another topic. It's one of those long sentences again, actually, but um, at only 189 words this time, it's only his fourth best effort. He only resumes this interrupted thought in verse 14. And this whole little section here is a bit puzzling. Sometimes it's not easy to know why such a passage is there at all. But, of course, we can be sure of two things. Firstly, it is Scripture, and therefore it's definitely valuable. And secondly, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God wants us to know something about him. So with those objectives in mind, let's try to see what he has in mind. Reading from Ephesians 3 then, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how by that revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now this excursion of Paul's isn't without precedent because he also does it a couple of times in Romans. It seems that he just had the intention of expanding what he's just said about the union of Jew and Gentile into the church or perhaps to add to the prayer that he had started in chapter 2. Now what we have to remember is that as Paul was writing this, there wasn't any twink in those days. So um, there wasn't any question of just pressing delete or chucking away the big piece of text that you'd done already, um, but you needed to just carry on. The section between verses 2 and 13 is all about mystery, and we will learn about Paul's responsibility to make the mystery known, who this new revelation came to, and what the mystery actually contains. But first of all, of course, we must look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. You know, if you just look at this piece of text, it's very easy to imagine that Paul is just being a bit big-headed. It's too easy to imagine that he might be boasting, but this isn't the case. He is both stating a fact and issuing a challenge. At this point in time, Paul literally was a prisoner, though exactly where we can't be sure. I do suspect, though, that in those days, prisons didn't have three square meals, central heating, and a TV like they do today. So we might reasonably expect a prisoner to be miserable and focused on themselves and their predicament. However, this isn't what we see here. Ruth Paxson, who was a Bible teacher, a missionary and author in the first part of the 20th century, puts it like this. She says, There is no smell of prison in Ephesians, for Paul is not bound in spirit. He is there as the prisoner of Rome, but this he will not admit, and claims to be the prisoner of Jesus Christ. What is the secret of such victorious otherworldliness? Paul's spirit is with Christ in the heavenlies, though his body languishes in prison. 
Paul is really walking his talk. He is in a poor circumstance, but he is using it profitably, as always, to the glory of God. You know, he might have said, I'm locked up again, there's nothing I can do. But instead, he puts pen to paper and writes this letter. And we know that this is something he does on other occasions. Now, this causes me to ask myself, when have I let physical or mental difficulties distract me from serving God? Well, quite a lot, actually. Every day, to be more specific. And never mind big difficulties, it's often quite ordinary things that will easily divert me from looking to God. There's obviously a challenge that we can take from Paul here. If we are to call ourselves by the name Christians, then we must live out that name. Certainly it is gained by an inner change, but its nature insists that we must consequently have an outward expression or it will just be an empty name. Our lives are lived for God's glory and not our own. And this means service. Service wherever and however we are. Colossians 3.23 has this well-known reminder. It says, Bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. There's obviously a lot in common between the text that I've just read and what we're looking at today in Ephesians. And that being the case, can I propose that if we've heard good advice given twice in Scripture, that it's probably advice we should take. Next, what is Paul's motivation? He says that he is the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Let's break this down. Firstly, he is motivated by who he serves, Christ Jesus. What difference does that make? What if he served Rome or Mike or Boris? The problem is that those are all earthly masters with earthly and temporal rewards. No difference to your eternal life can be found there. But when your master, your captor, is the anointed saviour, the son of the living God, then you know that service in his name is worthy and that the heavenly reward that he promises will be delivered. Secondly, Paul has a clear task to bring the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles. He knows that it really is good news, the best news there can be in fact, so he is very anxious to share it, whatever the circumstance. How does Paul serve? He is a prisoner as we read, but clearly not unwillingly. We might say rather than being held captive, he is captivated. He recognizes that he doesn't want to move away from Christ. He yearns to do his will because he is held there by Jesus' love. Let me try to illustrate. This is a magnetic dish used by mechanics. Okay, it's just a, a steel dish and this black bit on the bit is a big magnet. If you've ever taken a car to pieces, then you'll know that it's really hard to keep track of all the nuts and bolts when you take them off because there's never anywhere flat to put them down. And if you drop them, particularly in modern cars, there are so many pipes and wires and fittings and they just fall in the back and you can never find them again. Now you might say, okay, we'll just put them in a container. Well, that's all very well. 
But I found when you put them in a container, you knock the container over, and now you've lost 11 nuts and bolts, not just one. Into the magnetic dish, okay? You can stick that onto any metal surface at any angle, put fasteners in there, and they'll stay there. You never lose them, okay? The magnetic force holds them, but in a good way. Without Jesus' love that took him to the cross for our sins, we too would be lost. But with it we are held securely, no matter what the angles or upside downs that life throws at us. Isn't that gift of security just fantastic? And isn't that a great incentive to serve him like Paul? So in this first verse we have had the example of Paul to encourage us that if we have the right motivation, we can serve God in all circumstances and that motivation comes from the relationship we have in love with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on now to the matter of the mystery that I spoke about earlier and we'll read verses 2 to 6 again just to refresh our memories. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how by that revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, in this translation, which is the New King James Version, verse 2 is a bit hard to understand. And many of you will probably have other translations, such as the NIV, which I think is a bit clearer. It says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. And that's a bit clearer. So simply Paul is saying something like, well, you've probably heard about the job that I'm doing to speak about God's grace, but just in case you haven't, I'm going to explain. Well, it's as easy as that. So we, we can move straight away on to verse 3. How by that revelation he made known to me the mystery. Let's start by looking at this word mystery. In the biblical context, a mystery is the hidden eternal plan of God that is being revealed to God's people in accordance with his plan. It describes things that mortal man cannot understand without a revelation from God in a way and at a time known only by him and it comes through the Holy Spirit. Simply put, we can't know unless God tells us. He will decide how and when and he will do it through his Holy Spirit. In secular terms, a mystery such as the one that we might read about in a novel, well, it suggests that there is knowledge withheld, that it's hidden. But on the other hand, its scriptural significance, a mystery is truth revealed. Hence the words we might see associated with a subject in the Bible are words like made known, manifested, revealed, preached, understood, dispensation. And when we see those words in, in scripture, then we will know that they are probably talking about a mystery. It's very important that we realize that the scriptural purpose of mystery is openness because there were many secret religions called mystery religions that flourished before and around the time of Christ and they had that name because their initiation and other rituals were kept secret. You might have in your reading come across people named Gnostics and that starts with a G by the way, Gnostics, like a Gnu. 
This name is derived from the word gnosis, which means wisdom or higher knowledge. And they claimed to be able to know and do things that ordinary Christians could not because they had some kind of special secret knowledge that they had received from angels or an inner light or some such nonsense really. The bad news is that they are still around today, maybe with different names, but they are still around and they are aimed right at a fleshly weakness. As humans, we have a hunger to be special, to know something that the person next door to us doesn't. And this can lead us into spiritual and physical error when someone seductively whispers the potential of hidden knowledge into our ears. Scripture, Christianity and the Gospel are designed and intended to be open and shared. Certainly they have a basis in mystery, but it is for the most part mystery revealed. I say for the most part because we will never fully understand God, because we cannot. His deity makes him so different to us that we can only see what he chooses to reveal to us. I want to say, be on your guard. If you hear a claim of special revelation, treat it with the utmost caution. Go to scripture. Is it consistent with well-known theology? And by this, do I mean several commentators agree on this interpretation? Is it based on a brand new understanding of one word in Hebrew from a verse of one of the minor prophets? That's probably not so good. Consult your witch doctor, I mean your pastor. Sorry, your pastor. Or someone that you know to be well grounded in scripture. Seriously, this isn't something that is confined to America or somewhere far, far away. But it is real and it's alive. And it is alive in Wanganui today. And it's very easy for every one of us to go astray. In comparison, Paul explains very carefully where he has received his knowledge. It is by revelation from God himself. Bearing in mind what I've just said about witch doctors and the like, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, right. There are heaps and heaps of folk who claim to hear from God. What makes them wrong and Paul right? Well, from our perspective, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of experience through which to judge the truth of Paul's words. He is pointing out that what he has to tell us aren't clever words from himself or someone else, but they are revealed truth from God. Let's move on. Now the bit in brackets in the latter part of verse 3 leading into the whole of verse 4 is important because it links the two together and it also makes a bridge back to what Paul has written earlier in the book. He's saying, because you've read what I've already written, and this probably is a bit of a cue to make sure that you go back and read it again, then you'll know what I'm on about now. The Greek word rendered knowledge, as used in this section, infers a bit more than something just learned. It is the word synesis. It refers to a mental putting together, and it carries with it a picture like two rivers joining together. And that's very appropriate when you think about what we have just learned about God's revelation to Paul, how the Lord has spiritually poured knowledge into him. It wasn't something that he made up or figured out for himself. Verse 5 tells us that the mystery is contemporary. Okay, It's alive now, and it supports what I said in the last sermon about the prophets and apostles being New Testament rather than Old Testament. It reads, 
which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. After all, if they'd known about the mystery in Old Testament times, well, they would surely have mentioned it. Also, this verse supports the idea of an open revelation because it shows that Paul didn't have this knowledge alone, but that he shared it along with the New Testament apostles and prophets. Why am I making a fuss about the apostles and prophets being New Testament? Well, I want to do it because it's a good example of what I've just been speaking about. There is a school of Christian thought that says that the church isn't a new thing, as we have been discussing, and they use verse 5 as part of their justification. And I can sort of see how, because if you reread this verse with a different eye, it is possible to misunderstand the text, which, in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. To suggest that it was the amount of mystery that was known, not its nature or existence, by focusing on the not made known and as it has now been. Do you see how you could read it differently? They say that the church did actually exist in the Old Testament, that Israel was the church, but that the truth of the church has now been more fully revealed. They say The mystery was not known in other ages as it is now revealed. It was known, but not to the same extent as now. We have a fuller revelation, but we are still the Israel of God. That is a continuation of God's people. Now, to begin with, whilst I'm a very, very great distance from being a scholar of Greek, the word that's used for not here is described as being the absolutely negative. Okay, absolutely negative. It also means no or not, nay, neither, never, no, none, not, and nothing. Okay, so it's kind of hard to believe that there is any remnant of mystery that might be left over for previous ages to enjoy. The essential part of the argument actually comes from Acts 7.38, as it was written in the original 1611 King James Version, where the nation of Israel is described as the church in the wilderness. And the New King James Version now uses the word congregation. And although those words church and congregation are used, we shouldn't read too much into them because there is no clear and definite connection with the Christian church, the new thing that Paul is speaking of. These words have been translated from the Greek word ecclesia, and that's just a general term that can mean any assembly, congregation, or called out group. In Scripture, it's not only applied to Israel as here, But the same word, translated assembly, is used in Acts 19 of a heathen mob. (laughs) This demonstrates that if we don't consider context, then we may very well end up in error. And this is a good example about what I'm talking about. Reliable doctrine needs a strong and considered body of evidence. It's very easy to go astray. The arguments are often subtle, not obvious, so we must be careful. So how do we address this argument that verse 5 means the church existed in the Old Testament, though it was not as fully revealed then as now? Well, let Scripture defend Scripture. This is answered in Colossians 1.26, which states flatly that the mystery was hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. It is not a question of the degree of revelation, but of the fact of it. Either it was or it wasn't. One of the commentaries I consulted said this. 
I would say that those who insist that the churches back in the Old Testament were more or less usurping the place of the Lord. They are telling something the Lord himself didn't tell. They act as if they know something God didn't know. Mystery means that it was not revealed in the Old Testament, and since he didn't reveal it, it isn't there. Now that is a bit of an excursion, but I think it's really important for all of us, and I'm going to go on to say more about this in a bit, are well grounded in sound theology. You know, I used to have the attitude that theology was something for the guy in the pulpit, or the elders, or those of some special kind of spirituality. But the truth is that theology is for every one of us. Theology just know, means knowing about God. If you want to be a Christian, then you must know about God. And you must make sure that what you know is sound. Let's get back to the text. That the revelation of the mystery of the, that the revelation of the mystery was made to Paul by the Holy Spirit, as we read in verse 5, well that's a fulfillment of the promise that was made by Jesus in John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now the Greek word that is used by Paul uh, for revealed is used many times in the New Testament and it always relates to something that was hidden in God and completely unknown but is now being openly revealed. It's more than just passing on knowledge but the actual unveiling of intrinsically hidden facts. It's just like the difference between knowing that the sky is blue and understanding why the sky is blue. It wasn't any human, not even specially enabled prophets or apostles that would be able to open up this mystery for understanding because it was hidden in God and no man can know him. Thus it had to be the Spirit who enabled Paul and consequently us to know things that otherwise could not be known by any human. Let's think about this for a bit. You know, we're discussing this quite casually. It seems quite reasonable and the Sunday roast is in the oven. But really, it is quite extraordinary. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent, has chosen to reveal hidden parts of his purpose and character to mere humans. Would you bother talking to a fly, particularly one that has irritated and bitten you? Yet this is what God has done for us through Jesus. He has re-established the relationship he intended for us at creation, although we did not in any way deserve it, and he did so at great personal cost. How wonderful is that? So what is it in this case that he has revealed? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. We read here of a joining together and similar treatment of Gentiles and Jews. However, we mustn't, mustn't misunderstand what we read. The mystery isn't that Gentiles will have salvation because 
In fact, there are many promises of this in the Old Testament. The mystery revealed is that Jews and Gentiles will be treated in the same way in their relationship to God. Now this was previously unthinkable, and any Jew would have just laughed at the suggestion. But here it is. It must have been very shocking for Jews, and very exciting for Gentiles to read. I want to clearly emphasize the message given here. Gentile believers have not become part of Israel. They have become part of the new creation, the church, under exactly the same terms and conditions as Jews. This is the fulfillment of a new covenant as prophesied in Jeremiah 31. It is not the same as the old covenants, and therefore there is no requirement for any Christian to live under the terms and conditions of these old covenants, whether they are of Jewish or of Gentile heritage. Sacrifices, feasts, and observances of the law are thankfully no longer necessary. They were burdensome, and they were ultimately futile when it came to salvation because of humans' love of sin. The glorious thing is that we have been set free from them, Jews and Gentiles alike in one body, united under Christ, partners in the promise of the gospel. What a sweet privilege Jesus has brought us, and at what cost. What else can we do but thank and praise and serve him? Now, we're about halfway through this section because it does continue on to verse 13. And obviously, if I was to carry on, I guess most of you would have left for that roast. So, um, there's no time to complete it, and I will come back to this next week. But before we leave here, I want to quickly go back over the main points so that we will have something to think about as we go home. As I've gone through this week, I've been thinking about this matter of serving God in whatever I do. And I found it to be actually very challenging. And I don't mean it just in the context of of facing big things, you know, like being in prison, because that doesn't happen to most of us. But very generally, how do I serve God in this moment? Whatever I'm doing, why I'm building a fence while I'm sanding down, stopping on a ceiling. How do I serve God in that moment? I want to challenge you to try to keep this example of Paul's in the front of your mind as you go through this week. You might have the opportunity to do something amazing like Paul, I don't know. But it's more likely that you will just be doing the ordinary mundane things at home and work that you always do. But, How will you do them so that they glorify God? Next, one of the things we've learned from this text is that God is fundamentally mysterious. He is so because he's different from us, not in degrees, but in orders of magnitude. We will only understand him when he chooses to reveal his mysteries, as he has here. No amount of logic or philosophy will do the same, and passive listening will never be as effective as active searching. (laughs) What do I mean? Well, God has revealed himself very substantially in Scripture. If we want to see, understand and find him, we will find him there. But this presupposes that we will make the effort to look. Are we doing that? 
Be careful, little eyes. Do you remember Calvin's sermon on that? Yes, we must be careful about what we watch and listen, but we must also be wise about who or what we follow. It's way too easy to fall into scriptural error because it's often subtle and often we try to operate with both legs and one arm tied together because we don't study scripture and therefore lack the means to test what we hear and read or determine what is the right direction to go. It's a very poor circumstance to be in. The question is, how will you and I address these three problems so that we can take hold of and share with others the great body that we are all part of, this new creation in Christ, the church? How will we fulfill our part as temple blocks? Well, I believe there is one solution for all three. It's pray and study. Pray and study. Pray and study. His mystery must become our movement. Let us give thanks to God for his word. Father, thank you for the way that you can show us challenge even in the most unlikely sections of your word. It is so rich, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would operate in every one of us to drive us to your word, to open it, to drink it in, Lord, to make it part of us so that we do the right things in the world, we do the right things for your glory. Father, bless us as we go away in this week with the filling of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.